Leaving comfort is rough, but God was so enamored with us that he left the comfort of heaven. That's pretty local. We didn't deserve it, but he did it anyway. So God himself took on a fragile body. God of the universe got the flu and the common cold. He sweated and he bled. He took on haters. He was jumped by soldiers. People spat on him and ultimately murdered him. And in that weak, breakable body, Jesus sat with the contagious and the hurting. He listened, he healed them, he encouraged them, he taught them. And that's where he found us, in the sketchy places you wouldn't take tu familia. And rather than call us hopeless, Jesus pulled us out the gutter, placed hands on the addicted, shady, and diseased people. He looked us in the eyes and called us beloved children. This is the incarnation, God incarnate. God in the meat, God on the block, God on the street. And these are the stories of the people he met. I'm excited to be here with you guys today. The air conditioning was working last week. And it's not working this week. I don't know what's going on, but I appreciate you guys being here. I wish we handed out those little fans, but we don't have any today. Instead, we'll have to uh, to just, you know, every once in a while, fan each other down. So we're going to be in God's Word today in Luke 18, 18 through 27. That's Luke 18, 18 through 27. We have Bibles available in the corner. Uh, don't feel embarrassed to go grab one. Uh, I leave mine uh, in all kinds of places all the time. And so... Um, I'm excited to share with you from God's Word what God's been teaching me. Um, I feel like every time I go to the Word for you, I have a word for me. I have an encouragement for me. I have a rebuke for me. And so uh, I feel like uh, that is true today. And um, Luke 18, 18 through 27, can I read to you, friends? A ruler asked him, now we know who him is, right, at this point? You're assuming, right? It's Jesus. Okay. A ruler asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus asked him. No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments? Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. I have kept all these since my youth, he said. When Jesus heard this, he told him, you still lack one thing. Sell all you have and distribute it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. After he heard this, he became extremely sad because he was very rich. Seeing that he became sad, Jesus said, How hard is it for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God? For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard this asked, Then who can be saved? He replied, What is impossible with man is possible with God. This is God's word. Would you pray with me? Father, as impossible as we seem, you loved us. You treated us like beloved children when we treated you like dirt. As impossible as this world feels, and it feels so impossible sometimes, with our hate, our division, our hopelessness, our addictions, you say that you have overcome this world. Would you please reach down into this room this morning and give us a deeper sense of your grace? Would you rest our idols from our tight hands this morning? Would you change us for your good? May the words of my mouth and the thoughts of our hearts be pleasing to you. 
We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So there's a couple things that uh, we should talk about before we get into this message. Um, the first one is something called the prosperity gospel. Now, some of you guys may have heard this. Um, usually the prosperity gospel is spoken by pastors with slick back hair. Oftentimes there's a phone number underneath their name and it's often on TV. But it's not just on TV. And it's not just uh, the ones that have cool rings and cool cars. Many pastors will preach the prosperity gospel. This idea, if you just trust Jesus with your finances, then he will give you more. If you just love God enough, then he will give you all the things that you desire. But we know that that's, that's more like the genie in Aladdin than it is like God, right? On the other side, though, uh, people more like me tend to uh, embrace something called the poverty gospel, which is just as sinful, friends, just as sinful. This idea that if you have two jackets, you are a jerk. <laughs> you shouldn't even call yourself too, uh, Christian if you have two jackets. You should be poor. You should look poor to everyone. You know what? You, you probably aren't a Christian if you aren't poor. That's the other side. This idea that, that to really embrace and follow Jesus means that you will have nothing. And I would say that that is not true either. And so today we're going to look at this verse and we're going to see what does this truly mean? What is Jesus really saying? What is he getting at? Uh, what have you heard about this and what is correct? Because I think we've all heard lots of things about this particular verse and we've all got an interpretation of it. And I hope that you can come to it a little bit like I did with a, I'm just going to have a blank slate and see what happens. And so today I have three lessons from the rich young ruler for you. My first point is this, when compared with Christ, you aren't the angel that you think you are. When compared with Christ, you aren't the angel that you think you are. I wanted to say you aren't as awesome as your mama says you are, but that might not fit for everybody. So in verse 18, a ruler asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus asked. No one is good except God alone. Now, uh, I got to tell you, when I was a new Christian and I was reading this, I, was, uh, I had this uh, mentor of mine, his name was Matt Hammett, and I would go to his office every week with uh, like a list of things that were wrong with the Bible that I didn't understand or whatever, and I would have highlights everywhere, you know, you could see through every page, I'd have question marks everywhere, and I went to him and I said, Matt, you said that Jesus is God, but clearly Jesus says he's not here, so what's the deal with that? Now, there's lots of other verses that we can use to interpret the fact that Jesus is God, and Jesus is willing to, uh, to accept that mantle uh, of a deity, of the deity, the one deity. But I remember being in Matt's office, and I'm like, what is the deal with this? What does this mean? But here's the thing. Jesus is questioning the man's motive. Um, one commentator paraphrases Jesus more like this. Realize that if you call me good, you are calling me God. It's quite a different way to think about it, isn't it? Realize that if you call me good, you are calling me God. Now, some people have said that this man is just flattering Jesus. Um, I'm not so certain that's true. Here's why. Um, because I don't think he would go to Jesus with a real concern. And then if you remember what we already read, he left sad. Now, if you were just going to, to fight with Jesus and you wanted to prove that he were wrong, and Jesus just said, um, said that he uh, speaked about his goodness and and this man leaves sad, that shows that this man is there to listen to him. That is going to learn from him. That doesn't mean this man will embrace him. As we see, he left. Um, but uh, that's just a side thing. Uh, he wants a gold star from Jesus, and Jesus does not present him with one, and he leaves. 
So moving on to verse 20. You know the commandments, Jesus said. Do not commit adultery, murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness, honor your father and your mother. I have kept all these since my youth, he said. When Jesus heard this, he told him, you still lack one thing. Sell everything you have, distribute it to the poor, and you will treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. So how do we translate this verse? Do we look at it and we say good is relative? No. Um, Do we look at it and see what can I do to be saved? And I think that's probably a better way to look at it. Can I do anything to be saved? And and here we see that Jesus Jesus puts um, the plumb line so far that it's impossible to measure up. It's impossible to measure up. This story is actually told three times in the Bible. But Luke is the only one who uses this word, archon, which is reference to this young man, which means leader. It's a term for influencer. It's a term for leader. Uh, He he actually most likely was in his teens, which is interesting because I don't really think about him this way, although it would explain a lot, right? That he's in his teens and he goes to Jesus and says, I've kept every commandment since I was, since I was young. Because I feel like, you know, maybe when you're young, uh, you know everything. I feel like every 10 years I look back and say, wow, I, I know a lot less than I knew 10 years ago. So I can imagine an 18-year-old walking up to Jesus and saying, I've kept every commandment since I was young. Now, first off, like, he's, he's still young, right? Like, so, you know, uh, it, it's kind of clear, like, yeah, okay, you have, but have you really experienced life yet? Um, and I know I'm only 36, and some of you guys are thinking right now, have you experienced life yet? And I would tell you, no, because I'm not going to assume the posture of that young man. I'm going to say, probably in 20 years, I'm going to look back and say what a fool I was. But here's the thing. This young man... Elsewhere, uh, in Matthew, he's referred to as young. So kind of what we do is we got to pull from each of the different stories, and we see in one story he's young, one story that he's rich, one story that he's influential, and so we pull it all together to fully understand the breadth of what this is. Now, each author wants you to understand something a little bit different, and I've chosen this one in particular because I think it's illustrative uh, of, of what we want to understand of this rich man, and I'm, I'm pulling from each piece. So um, he's most likely part of the religious elite, those guys are called the Pharisees. Um, and we're left to assume this is a wealthy man who is known for his leadership in the community, and people look up to him. So even though he's young, he is influential. He's looked up to. He's got money. Sometimes the money is what makes you influential, but that's what happens. So it feels like he's approaching Jesus hoping to justify himself, right? Or just put an exclamation point on life, like his life, his awesome life, his life that Jesus should look to him and say, there is your example, young man. He's the smartest he's ever been or ever will be. He's a teen. This dude is hitting home runs every day, and he wants Jesus to say, whoa, you are amazing. Wow. But instead, Jesus is saying, bruh, of course you are hitting home runs. You're playing on a t-ball field. Come on out to Petco Park. Let's get a 100-mile-per-hour fastball at you, and let's see how that goes. You'll barely get it out of the infield if you hit the ball. That's what Jesus is saying to this man. I know you say that you're great. I know that you kept every command. Way to go, awesome young man, but it's nothing. It's nothing. Now, if you're the rich young ruler here, your response to Jesus' question at first is confidence in yourself, right? In your actions. But if you are like that person, I promise you, if you feel like you can approach God in this manner and say, yeah, I'm pretty good. I'm pretty awesome. Then you're in for a reckoning. I tell you. That is not the way we approach a holy God. 
Our faith is one of grace and grace alone, and all you have is a free gift that has been given to you. If you compare yourself to others on basis of your goodness, you are on shaky ground. While we are always searching for someone worse than us, God compares us with perfection. It is so easy to look to someone and say, yeah, 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 but I'm not like them, right? And I'm sure that this is what this guy is doing. He's saying, hey, I've done a lot of good. Now, he knows everything about him that's not good. But when he's fronting and when he's putting himself in Jesus' face and he's saying how great he is, he's comparing himself to everyone else around him. He's not comparing himself to Jesus, though, is he? And we know that Jesus didn't have a home. That Jesus laid his head on rocks. That Jesus slept by fireplaces. Don't compare yourself to Jesus. It never works out. This is like when my kids call my house their house. Um, I'm cool with you calling it your house, but when you start to take ownership, like this is my stuff, this is my place, um, this is my land, I licked it. Like we give our kids a few chores, right? We, we tell them to clean their room, and they, right, kids do it sometimes-ish. Um, sometimes we have them do the dishes, right? Sometimes we have them take out the trash, and then what do we end up doing? The dishes and taking out the trash to fix what they did, but we're trying to help them to understand that they need to take responsibility. But when they say that this is my house, this is my stuff, these are my things, it's that moment when we have to set them straight and we have to say to them, whose house is this really? Who provides for this house? Who owns this house? And then I tell them the truth, the bank. But, <laughs> but then I say, no, this is our house that God has, has trusted us with. And, and I will say, I didn't earn it. I didn't earn the right to have this house. This is your mother and your father who have worked hard to pay for this house. This is the advantage I've had uh, from my family that has enabled me to have this home. I don't take it for granted. This is God's home. But sometimes we tend to think uh, that we've done enough when really when compared to the bigger issue, we do not. We have not done enough. And so my response to my kids is, child, you have not earned enough to say this is your home yet that you own it, that's yours. Now, they might respond by comparing themselves to another child. But I do the dishes, and this, this kid only does uh, this little bit. And, and I look at it, and I say, the dishes is not going to provide a home, is it? The dishes doesn't provide a home. You taking out the trash doesn't mean that you've earned this house. Earning this house means that we've earned this house. So here's the thing. A lot of times we tend to go to God and say, hey, I did the dishes. This is my place now, right? This is my home. I've earned this. I've earned my place here. But those kids don't offer us anything tangible to pay for this house. They create more mess than they clean. And when it comes to tangible benefits, kids, you don't offer us anything tangibly. But I adore my children, and so I welcome them into my house. They offer me love, and I offer it back. They offer me love, and I offer them a house. They offer me love, and I offer them food as much as I can. They offer me hate. I offer them, them love as well. And so that's how it should be with the rich young ruler. Yes, he has done some token little things for those around him. They may even be big in the eyes of those people around him. But God pats him on the, said, on the head and he says, young man, at least you tried. That is the way God looks at this young man. Isaiah 64, 6 says this. All of us have become like something unclean. And all our righteous acts are like a polluted garment. All of us wither like a leaf. And all of our uh, iniquities carry us away like the wind. 
Now, I've been told when I speak about this uh, passage that um, I should just move on um, and not explain what it really means. Uh, but uh, there, those people who said that are not here. So um, <laughs> this says that your righteous acts, and I'm, I want you to know what the Bible truly says. Okay, so this is not to shock you. Um, but the, the correct translation of this is our righteous acts are like a menstrual rag. So a little awkward, okay? But we're talking like, like a before Christ menstrual rag in a place where you didn't always have access to, to fresh, clean water and things like that. And so he's saying, these are your good works. Compared to God, this is what it is. Now, this may sound like bad news to some, but to me, it's good news. You're not good enough. Because let's be honest, if you are doing it on your own, it is exhausting. But the other side of you're not good enough is your sin is not powerful enough to break the strength of Jesus' love for you. There is no sin that can separate you from the love of God. No sin too big. Oh, friends, that is good news to me. Because I find myself a professional sinner. I'm good at it. Like, I can do it in my sleep. Literally. Wake up from a dream and say, Lord, forgive me. All right, so Luke 18, 9 through 14, shows you the image of two different men. One man who says, I'm good enough, and one man who says, uh-uh. Luke 18, 9 through 14, which precedes this verse by just a few, uh, just, just a few numbers. Jesus told a parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and looked down on everyone else. Sounds a little bit like this young man. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, religious leader, and the other a tax collector, bad dude. The Pharisee was standing and praying like this about himself. God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, greedy, unrighteous, adulterers, or even like this tax collector over here. I kind of wonder if he read that out, or if he like prayed that out loud, because that's just the kind of thing a jerk would do, right? I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of everything I get, but the tax collector standing way off would not even raise his eyes to heaven but kept striking his chest and saying, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you, this one went down to his house justified rather than the other, because everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. So to go to Jesus and say, I did not earn this house that I live in, that you have provided, is, is an act of humility. I did not earn the grace that you give me, it's an act of humility. To go to Jesus and say, since I was a kid, I did everything you told me to. Yeah, I'm good. That, that is the sin. That is where Jesus says, mm -mm. I don't know if he says, mm -mm. but if you have to talk to one, more, if I have to talk to one more person who says this to me, they say this quote, I just try to be a good person. And I know God has me. If I have to hear that one more time, I'm going to lose my crap. I, can I say that in church? You, you just did. I just did. <laughs> Like, where did you hear that? Like, did you see that on like a Tom and Jerry cartoon? Like that the good cat, that when he died, he went up to heaven because he was a nice cat or something? Like there's nowhere in the Bible that it says that. That's closer to, you're going to hate me, Islam, Jehovah's Witnesses, and Mormonism. They will tell you if you just work hard enough. If you just work hard enough, you can get into heaven. If you just tell enough people about Jesus, you can get into heaven. If you, if you just do enough... Um, spiritual exercises, you will get into heaven. And no, 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 Jesus says no, because you can't earn it. You can't. 
It's not based on your righteousness. It's based on the righteousness of Jesus. And your works will never suffice. You're not good enough. I'm not good enough. The best preacher you've ever heard is not good enough. Mother Teresa was not good enough on her own. Jesus would not have gone through what he went through if you could just save yourself by not cheating on your taxes. If all it took was you helping an old lady across the street, then Jesus would not have to die. He would have to get a paper cut for you to get into heaven. But that's not what happened. It's hot in here. Now I'm getting all worked up. So Jesus, let this young man know that perhaps he's not as awesome as he thinks he is. Next, Jesus teaches him something very important. That his idols will simply not do as a substitute for God. And that's our second point. Jesus doesn't share with your idols. Jesus doesn't share with your idols. For this man, it just so happened that his idol was perhaps his wealth or maybe his good works. I'm not really sure which one Jesus would strike at first, but clearly he had two. Now, do you remember a few weeks ago when when Peter and James were called by Jesus? Jesus said to them, follow me. And then they left everything. That's all he said. So why does Jesus tell this man, sell everything and follow me? Well, it's because his wealth is more important than God to him. James Edwards says it this way. He says, one cannot say that wealth is a categorical evil in the third gospel, but one must say that it poses an unquestionable danger to faith and discipleship. So in verse 23, it says, after he heard this, he became extremely sad because he was very rich. Seeing that he became sad, Jesus said, how hard is it for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God? For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Now, here's what I heard when I went to church. I heard that there's a place in Israel that's called the needle. And it's this place where it's like a gate and like a donkey has to kneel down to like get through. And that's what Jesus was talking about. I researched this. This story came out in the 1400s. That's like a long time after Jesus' time. Okay, and there's no substantiated case where this can be truly traced back to it. So I want to say to you, if you've heard that, throw that in the trash. Okay, here, here's what I okay. Then ancient African Bible scholar Origen said this in the 200 AD, so a little bit closer to Jesus' time. Uh, this word camelos, which would have been uh, the same uh, word for camel, was very similar to camelos, which was a large rope or a cable on a ship. So uh, one idea from origin was that this big old rope was trying to fit through the eye of a needle. But here's what I think it really was. I really think Jesus was standing around preaching to people, and there was one of the largest animals that was in the ancient kingdom at the time. Readily available, great illustration, right there, there's a camel. A real camel. And there's a needle. And, and here's what I think. You guys can look at this however you want to, but I'm going to tell you, this is the way I'm going to interpret it. Um, I'm going to interpret it the way that it looks like it's supposed to be. The way that it's obvious to me. The obvious thing that Jesus is saying here, a camel, big old animal, cannot go through the eye of a needle. Why is he saying that? Why would he say something like that? Because it's impossible. It's completely impossible for you to do this on your own. Rich man, poor man, great man, weak man. It's impossible for you to do it. A needle was very small. A camel was very big. So Jesus most likely meant what you read the first time you read the Bible without some smart guy telling you what it means. It's impossible. It's meant to be something you should imagine as impossible. 
Entering the kingdom of God is hard for those who are controlled by their wealth. Entering the kingdom of God is hard for those who are controlled by drugs. Entering the kingdom of God is hard for those who are controlled by their desire for influence. Entering the kingdom of God is hard for those who feel justified by just doing good things for other people. Entering the kingdom of God is hard for those who are controlled by their idols. Jesus is clearly speaking to this particular man's idols. Make no mistake, though. Jesus clearly points out the dangers of wealth. Nambian theologian Paul John Isaac says this simply. The sin of the rich man was that he was not prepared to share what he had. Friends, I want all of you to be responsibly wealthy. So, you know, if you guys took this this little clip out of uh, context and just put it online, I could look like one of those prosperity gospel preachers. I want everyone in here to be uh, wealthy. I desire that. I want you to get raises at your jobs. I want you to work hard at them, but I don't want wealth to... Uh, wealth or work to control you. Take Sundays off. Take time to rest. Make sure your job doesn't sacrifice you being a good spouse or parent. If it does, find a new job. Use your money on others. Don't let it enslave you. I want you to get that raise, right? But I want you to consider that God might have plans for that raise. This is not me saying, give me more money. Don't hear that. If your car is working, do you need the better car? Or should you consider adoption? What if you could keep that car and buy another car for a working mom? What if you could live off the amount you made before the promotion? If you did, if that job started to get really hard, it would be quite easy to go over to a different job. This is getting a little too brass tacks, I know, but the thing is we can't let money control us. And one of the ways we do that is by living below our means. What happens, though, when most of us get a better job, is we extend our shackles, don't we? Rather than trying to get out of debt so we can become more generous people, we decide to buy a bigger house. How can you have more money and owe more money? Now, U.S. News and World Report says this. It says, Warren Buffett is the third richest man in the world, boasting of a net worth of $63 billion, according to Business Insider, with an average earning of $37 million per day. The Oracle of of Omaha is famously frugal and still resides in the home he purchased in 1958 for $31,000. He knows how to live below his means, doesn't he? (laughs) Actress Kira Knightley, whether you like her or not, she has lived off of a $50,000 annual budget since 2012, but her net worth is upwards of $50 million. Now, some of you guys work tirelessly, and that is admirable, but I can tell you, Your children would rather have you home more often than bigger birthday presents and bigger birthday bigger Christmas presents. They would rather have more of you than eating out more often. Your children will remember you long after they've forgotten the things you provided for them. I can still remember how bad I wanted that Sega Game Gear thing, and it's in the trash. But the times I've spent with my family have been more important to me. Jesus reminds us here, money can be an idol that terrorizes you. Also, let me say this. If you are good with money, it can be an idol. You can penny pinch and treat people around you awful. So there's just like, the devil has tricks all around, doesn't he? One of the worst things about money is how it can give you a false sense of comfort and security. 
It's a drug. It can lull us to sleep. How often does an athlete work their butt off for a payday? You guys know what I'm talking about. If, at least to the people who like sports in this room, you know about that athlete who works so hard to get paid, right? It's his last year of his contract. He works hard. He works hard. At the very end of the season, he gets this huge contract, and then he shows up the next season for, for minicamp, and he looks like the Michelin man, right? Like he's been sitting the entire summer because now he's, got, he's been paid. He's been paid, and and oftentimes that athlete will never find success again because they just sat back and found comfort in the money they received. They worked hard for their payday. Now they're going to sit back. I hope that we don't do that. I hope that we don't do that. Friends, look to the things that might cause you comfort apart from Christ and recognize their impermanency. Your money, your job, your home, your transportation, I'm going to get real, your spouse, your health, your church, your mental capacity, your children. We have to look at all these things, and we have to be able to hold them loosely. Now, I'm not saying that this is me telling you to go get a divorce. This is me telling you to leave your job, but I am saying that you have no promises for tomorrow. Your health is not a promise for tomorrow. Your spouse's health is not a promise for tomorrow. Friends, if we put all our faith in our children, we have no idea what will happen to them tomorrow. That's scary. It's scary because I have seen people put all their faith in their children, all their faith in their family, all their faith in their spouse, all their faith, faith in their job, and then something happens, and they say to God, where are you? And he's like, I've been here the whole time, but why have you been worshiping that? If these things are your idols, if these things are the things you put your hope and trust in, then what happens if they disappear tomorrow? Friends, what if my brain goes tomorrow and I don't have it anymore? I don't have the same capacity. What am I going to do? I love writing. What if my hands go? I love playing guitar. I love singing. What if my voice goes tomorrow? Will I trust God or am I putting all my faith in these things, in these small impermanent things? You might get angry at God when you lose them, but he might remind you that you shouldn't have put your trust in those. And let me tell you, that is the hardest thing for me in the world. This is why I'm challenged today, because I look at all the things in my life and I say, what would just devastate me if I lost them? This church would be one. And so I have to trust that God is in control. And so this is where we get our third point, that God is able to save anyone. So we found ourselves comparing ourselves to Jesus, and we're not who our mama said we are. And then Jesus says, you, you, you cannot worship these idols. So who are we to worship? How are we to worship him? What's it supposed to look like? Verse 26, those who heard this about the camel asked, then who can be saved? And he replied, what is impossible with God, what is impossible with man is, is possible with God. Here's what they're saying. If the rich can't get in, who can? So you got to understand a little bit of the theology of the day, right? Um, It was much like those prosperity gospel people that said, if you're rich, then God loves you. If you're rich, you have God's blessing. If you're rich, you've done something right in God's eyes. Now, we know that that's not true, right? Because, you know, Hugh Hefner had a lot of money and and we, okay. (laughs) Hugh Hefner was not in my notes today. I can tell you that. Um, here's the deal. The rich were considered to have God's blessing. If the rich couldn't make it into heaven, if the rich couldn't be a part of this kingdom of God moving forward on earth, then who could be a part of that kingdom? 
It's true. Jesus revealed how very much it takes to be saved, and then God said he can do it. So they ask him, well, then what do I do? And Jesus says, did I stutter? You, didn't, you don't do anything. He says, what is impossible with man is possible with God. Now, you may laugh at their confusion, but the cross had yet to happen. And it's so often that we look at the Bible and we look at the way Jesus was treated and we say, I would have treated him differently. I would not have done what those people did. I would not have acted like the religious people. I would have gone to Jesus and I would have treated him nicely. The thing is, Jesus didn't look any different than us. Jesus was annoying to all the idols that we had in that time. And he would be annoying and he would come and he would look at you and all your idols and he would say, that is junk and you need to get rid of it. And you would say, "Mm -mm, this is mine. What is impossible with man is possible with God. And this is the gospel. Friends, we are deserving of something not so good, and it's called the wrath of God. I don't often get up here and just talk about the wrath of God. Like, you're used to, like, the preacher with the big wooden lectern that's pounding his fists on the table, talking about the wrath of God, maybe with some cool suspenders, which, you know, I could try that. But the wrath of God is real. And the reason why many, many of us who stand up here every day sweating and preaching and, and admonishing and encouraging you do it is because we believe that there is a hell. Not just that we believe that there is a heaven. We believe there is a place that God would allow you to go that is apart from his love and grace and joy. A lot of times we say, why would a good God send people to hell? He's a loving God and he allows you to choose to be without him. Some people would say that you are doomed to this eternal hell based on God's choice. I don't know how it works out, but here's what I do know, friends. There is a place apart from God right now. And it is a place of torment. It is a place that is called the gnashing of teeth. That is the way they describe it. Sometimes we use the term fire. Other times we use gnashing of teeth. Gnashing of teeth to me feels more like, it feels more like it. They talk about biting your tongue in the darkness. Ooh, to me that, that almost like makes it more real even than, than fire. It's a pain. It's a hurt. It's a struggle. It's an absence of God. And our sin Our sinfulness sends us there, and yet there is this good news, and we call it the gospel. Jesus willingly came to this earth, left heaven, left the perfection of heaven because he loved you. He took on a human body that could be beaten, abused, hurt for you. And he died as a sacrifice for you. Jesus died as a sacrifice for me and you. Because he doesn't want you to be there. He wants you to be in his presence. So, if the gospel is true, then that means everyone here always has an opportunity to accept him at any moment. Now, if you're not a Christian and you come and you hear this message and you were like I was, I would say, that's a very manipulative thing. And yet, here's what I say. God could have forced us to be in heaven. He could have forced it on us. He could have said, you are going to stay in this house for the rest of your life. We don't say that to our kids, do we? That's not good parents. A good parent doesn't say, hey, you have to stay here forever. A good parent says, I desire to do anything that it would take to be in relationship with you. And that's what God did, and that is the gospel. And Jesus willingly died on the cross for your sins, rose again, showing that he conquered sin and death because he loved you and he loved me. And because you could not do it on your own. But that which is impossible with man is possible with God. And he made it possible on the cross. So let me ask you guys a question. It's a real question. It's not a rhetorical one. 
Who's your favorite superhero? Shout it out. I heard a Superman, Wolverine. I like Wolverine. Iron Man, T'Challa. Okay. Anyone else? Spider-Man. Batman. All right, someone got embarrassed for saying Wakanda forever, but that's all right. Okay, so someone actually did say my least favorite is Superman. I'm sorry. I cannot stand Superman. Superman could take a bullet in the eye, and it would bounce off and hit the guy who shot him. Superman could go around the earth really fast in a backwards motion to go, turn back time. Superman destroyed entire planets by flying through them. Superman flew through a sun. Okay, here's why I don't like Superman. He's too powerful. He's too powerful. There's just, there's like no stopping him. He has this one little like Achilles heel, right? What is it? Kryptonite, right? Kryptonite. The only problem Superman seems to have is kryptonite and women, right? This rock from a distant planet. And, you know, he had a weird girlfriend because, you know, he puts on the glasses and shouldn't know who he is. Um, but the stories about Superman just got old to me because I was like, of course Superman's going to win. Of course he's going to win. There's no humanity in that. There's no humanity in Superman. But here's the thing. Our God, who is far greater than Superman, took on a suit of kryptonite, willingly walked in weakness for you and me. We worship a God with a power far beyond Superman. He made his bed in kryptonite, and he still did it because he loved you. Romans 5, 8 through 10 says this, but God proves his own love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. How much more then, since we have now been declared righteous by his blood, all things are possible, will we be saved through him from wrath? For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, then how much more, having been reconciled, will we be saved by his life? So friends, I ask you this question today. Now it's rhetorical. I'll go shouting out on this one. What idols do you hold on to? What good things have you made into ultimate things? What good things have you made into God's? Things that will ultimately pass away, things that will ultimately perish. We must surrender those things to Jesus. Have you guys heard this idea that a, that a captain goes down with a ship? That's a noble thing, right? The captain goes down with a ship. Women and children first, then the crew, then the captain goes down with the ship. That is so noble. I love that. And so, you know, because I'm weird, I do this thing where I Google about things and I try to learn about it. And, and then I was kind of disappointed. Here's why the captain would go down with the ship. The captain would go down with the ship because he didn't want to lose any money. Okay, a man would rather die than be saved without his things. Okay, because captains were usually transporting precious cargo, right? But early salvage laws, when, when this started, said that if a captain jumps ship, then anyone can jump back on the ship and claim that as his. Once the captain's gone, you can jump on and say it's your ship. So if you're taking on a little bit of water, the captain's like, mm, I, might, I might stick this one out, right? <laughs> the captain might stick it out. And so when he's sticking it out so that he can keep his stuff what would often happen is the captain would go down and we would say, what a noble captain. 
He left his, his crew safely, and he just stayed there with the ship and died. But here's the thing. That's not true, is it? Now, maybe it merged into something over time, and maybe it became something noble, but there was a long time when the captain would go down with the ship because he didn't want to lose anything. Friends, you are on a sinking ship, and none of the stuff you have will go with you. None of the notoriety, none of the power, none of it will go with you. The way down is the way to hell, and hell is a real place. If you've been trusting in something else for a long time, throw that junk overboard and embrace life and embrace it in Jesus. Perhaps today is the day that you say, this is dragging me down and I need to give it up. This addiction, this struggle, this sin, this really, really good thing that I have embraced my whole life is dragging me down because I'm making it into God. But what do we say? Jesus doesn't share. Would you pray with me? God, I thank you that you are zealous for our love. God, that you don't, you don't like us walking with others. You don't like us treating them like they're our God. You don't like us treating money like it's our God. You don't like treating any, us treating anything like it's God because you don't share. And why don't you share? Because you want our whole hearts and you love us that much. God, in this moment, I ask for those of us who have trusted you before that need to say it to you, and those of us who have never trusted in you, that we would silently pray together, God, we're going to pray to you. God, we thank you that you love us. We thank you that you have taken our sins. But God, we want to hold on to them as tightly as possible. We want to hold on to our idols as tightly as possible. Loosen our grip. Open our hands. Open our hands to you because we're just not strong enough to do it ourselves. Would you help us with these struggles and sins? We thank you that you are so much better than the best thing in our life. God, in this moment, we confess silently our sins to you. Lord Jesus, I thank you that as far as the east is from the west, so is our sin from your sight when we confess it to you. God, now we stand before you with sincere hearts and a full assurance of faith that only comes through you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you that our sin was never so big that it could drive us away from you, that our sin was never so big that it would stop you from forgiving. And we thank you that you are so kind and gracious that you welcome in those who would spit in your face one moment and ask for forgiveness later. So God, help us to follow you. Help us to make you ultimate in our lives. But we love you and love that you forgive us. Love that when you see us, you see the righteousness of your son, Jesus. Thank you, Lord. We ask your blessing. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.